Should we be afraid of death? What about being maimed? And how did the ancient philosophies of Epicurus and Lucretius fit in with modern religion? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm speaking with an old friend, Ian Blaustein, lecturer in the philosophy department at Tufts University in Massachusetts about Epicurean and hedonistic philosophy and whether or not it can help us with our fear of death. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you'd like to become a Society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, on to Epicurus and Lucretius. Maybe we can start off, can you give just a brief outline um, to our listeners of what exactly was Epicurus and Lucretius's arguments to why we should not be afraid of death? Yeah, so I, Epicurus famously in his, uh, he, so he wrote much, was the founder of this whole school, Epicureanism, uh, well-named, um, but uh, has only a couple of written texts that have survived. Uh, one of those texts is the Letter to Menoesius. It's about three pages long, and it mostly, it does several things, but it mostly is Epicurus explaining to Menoesius why we shouldn't fear our own deaths. And he has a couple of sort of like very simple central arguments that he builds off of. The first one, I really, I really, it's so simple. When you are there, death is not. When death is there, you are not. So death is relevant neither to the living nor the dead. (laughs) So death is not something that's going to happen to you. Like, you'll cease, you'll die, you won't be around anymore. But once you have, you won't exist anymore. So you'll never have to experience being dead. So death is nothing to be afraid of. So that sort of, uh, the conclusion that we sort of come out of that argument with the thought that uh, the reason that you shouldn't fear it is because you'll never have to experience it. And this sort of leads into one of his other sort of like uh, central famous arguments. When I teach Epicurus to my classes, uh, this is the argument that I always like have to put on the board and we have to talk it through. And this is like what I want them to drill into. So it's really simple. All good and bad depends on sense experience. Death is the privation of sense experience. So there's no bad in death. Nor any good. Nor any good. Nor, no good, nor bad. He sometimes says something like, this means that death is nothing to us. But uh, most centrally, there is no bad in death. And uh, then the next step, very, again, very simple, very straightforward. It's foolish to be afraid of something that's not going to be bad for you. Mm-hmm. So it's foolish to be afraid of death. Mm-hmm. And there we go, following from sort of the, I mean, the most simple premise is being the idea first that um, I, this is something that Epicurus was strongly committed to. Uh, hedonism, uh, namely the view that good is pleasure. Pleasure is good. 
And that's the thing he's referring to by saying something like, all good and bad depends on sense experience. The only way something counts as good for you is if it's something that you can experience as such. Yeah. So maybe not with the anticipation of how you're going to feel tomorrow. Right. So, I mean, that's a, that's a bad experience, right? Like anticipatory fear is a form of experience and it's a bad one. And so that's a way in which so long as we are afraid of death, we are filling our lives with a certain kind of bad experience that there's no good in. Uh, not like there's no good, but that there's no good in as in it's not productive, he thinks, towards making our lives better. It's filling ourselves with anxiety about something that genuinely will happen. Yes. And that once it comes, we're not going to experience. So really, the only pain of death is the anticipation of it rather than the experience of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and a lot of people worry about the like, the moment of dying or something like that. But I think for Epicurus, if you're experiencing it, if it hurts, if you feel like the ghost coming out of you, that's something that can only happen while you're still alive. Mm -hmm. so death still isn't there. It's still like the pain or like awfulness of death is still actually something that's a part of life. And it's something that you're still experiencing within your life. And so it still doesn't even constitute something to be afraid of in death. Now, of course, you could fear the people left behind by your death. Absolutely. So one, one thing that a lot of us are going to, uh, to say is a reason for us to fear death is that there are people that we care about and people who depend on us and who need us there. And we fear our own death because we fear the difficulties that will be brought to the people who depend on us by mm -hmm. our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the kind of thing that I think uh, becomes a very vital thought in parenthood in a way that it might not have been outside or prior to parenthood. Uh, mm -hmm. But Lucretius at least wants to answer this. He specifically says one of the things that you might be thinking when you're fearing your own death is what about my children and like my uh, experience in them and their need and all of that. And he says, but guess what? Once you're dead, you will not have any yearning, yearning for these things. <laughs> this is a bit harsh. <laughs> it's extremely harsh. Super straightforward. You worry about your children right now, but don't worry. Once you're dead, you won't worry about your children anymore. So there will, once again, and for the same reasons, be nothing to worry about in death. So. But would you say that if you had that fear um, that your children would be in trouble if you died, that then you might plan accordingly in very helpful manners, you know, by help life insurance or put away a savings plan or, you know, if, the, the, the fear of death and the fear of your, the family left behind in death actually prompts you to do better moral actions. That, that, that fear is actually a good thing then. Well, and not just better moral actions, but uh, the whole, all right, 
on Lucretian and Epicurean grounds, it looks like it would have to be unreasonable to put money into a life insurance policy. Since by definition, that's something you're giving up right now for a future that you will not experience. You will not get the payout on your life insurance policy. Somebody else will. Yeah. Uh, So it looks like... Would that not give you pleasure knowing that your family in advance would be taken care of? Like that pleasure would counteract anxiety? So this is, uh, and presumably this is, not just presumably, this is part of the good of a lot of our insurances. They like to sell insurance by using the phrase peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, So part of what they're selling is the relief of anxiety. Um, And so this is, this is fair. It also points to something that both Epicurus and Lucretius take for granted that most of us, I don't think should take for granted. That is that all of our desires and all of our fears are centered on our own experiences Mm -hmm. what we desire our experiences for ourselves and that what we fear our experiences for ourselves that Lucretius is saying that you fear bad things happening to your child, but don't worry when you're dead, you won't have to experience seeing them in pain and want. So it's nothing for you to worry about. But that's presuming that what the bad is that you're worried about when you're worried about your children is the experience of you seeing them in pain and want Mm -hmm. rather than the fact that they are in pain and want. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the life insurance makes a, makes a good point in the anti Lucretian direction, because what you're making a provision for when you're paying the life insurance is not really your own peace of mind. You're not really doing it for the sake of, I, I should hope you're not doing it like essentially for the sake of relieving your own anxiety about what will happen to your children after you die. I would like to think that you're primarily doing it for the sake of having your children be in a better position after you die than they yes. would otherwise. Yes. So that it's not actually all about your own perception, but just the reality of actions. Exactly. Right. It's, it's actually, so I think the, the thing that they center this whole argument on that most of us don't want to agree with, or I think shouldn't want to agree with, is that all our desires and all of our fears center on our own experiences. Mm-hmm. Whereas part of what it is to care about somebody else is to regard their good as a genuine value for you and as something that you genuinely desire or their bad as something that you genuinely fear. Mm-hmm. That desire doesn't reduce to the pleasure of seeing them thriving. It actually is essentially on the thriving of them. Okay, so moving on to the next point then, with regards to us you know, not having to fear death because we won't have any senses, what then about fears of things that can happen before then? Like, should we worry about being maimed? I mean, do, do, do the arguments therefore hold up to anything short of complete annihilation of our self? Right. So, I mean, I think they, they don't, and they're not meant to. That is, I think uh, Epicurus and Lucretius would both hold that it makes perfect sense that their arguments against fear of death do not apply to fear of maiming, 
or fear of loss of like abilities or something like that. And they shouldn't. That is, they think those things are genuinely fearful. And it's perfectly reasonable to fear your own future pain or your own future loss of abilities. Um, because you're going to experience those things. Uh, if you, if you fear, <laughs> if you fear, I like maiming as our example. Uh, if you fear being maimed, like you're thinking, like what you're picturing when you're picturing being maimed is like going through this like terrible pain, like and then losing the loss of your legs and not being able to live your life in the same way you've been living it before. Those are the, the things that I picture when I'm thinking of this kind of fear. And Epicurus, Epicurus and Lucretius are both going to say, what you're imagining are bad sense experiences. Mm -hmm. And they're in a bad sense experience on this hedonistic view, there is genuine bad in those things. And it, therefore makes sense to fear them. But so in one way though, I think Epicurus says we shouldn't fear death and in the many ways that, that that fear of death takes away from our life, you know, because we spend time worrying and stressing about something that we will never actually experience. So by that argument, doesn't the fear of being maimed also take away from our life? I mean, if that's a legitimate thing to be afraid of, but it will also you know, obstruct a good life, a good moral life, living with the anxiety of being maimed. Right. Yeah. So I guess, I guess in part it depends. So one thing that Lucretius and Epicurus both talk about that they are both, so they're hedonists. Mm -hmm. And when you claim yourself to be a hedonist, especially in those days, you get painted with your, uh, those who argue against you paint with a broad brush. I think they do it today too. <laughs> yeah, they do it today too. Um, that what you what you care about are base sensory pleasures and nothing more, and that what the Epicurean, as a hedonist, wanted was a life of sex and fancy food. And Epicurus denied this, and he denied this on prudence grounds. That uh, the art that the art of prudence is the art of figuring out how to live the most pleasant and happy life, and how to get pleasures and how to avoid pains. And he thinks that a prudential life is one that is going to involve fearing things when those fears are productive towards you living a better life, mm -hmm. and it's going to involve narrowing down your desires significantly uh, because desires for things that are difficult to attain are a major source of anxiety and unhappiness. And so for him, he wants your desires to be limited to things that will be easy for you to attain. Okay, kids, are you listening? Don't dream big. <laughs> right. Don't take risks. <laughs> um, that's right. Um, That's the key, right? Right. Well, because, you know, you only live once. You only live so once. So. Stay in your village. Well, this is, this is the Achilles all over again, you know. You want glory and risk, you know, 
get your name up among the gods, but you'll probably die or live in a village, you know, forever. And, and of course, the, the, the Iliad, that's what Achilles chooses. But then when we see him again in the Odyssey, in the Nekia, he, he's in remorse of his decision. He wishes right. he'd old on a little village. Right. Perfect. Yeah. So... No, and that I I'd forgotten about I'd forgotten about the appearance in the Odyssey because that's that feeds right into the point I was about to make in response to uh, to the Achilles example. And Achilles wants glory. He wants his name to ring out throughout the world after his death, which it does. And this goes right to the heart of one of Lucretius's most famous arguments against the fear of death. Uh, Lucretius says that when you are afraid of being forgotten or afraid of being despised in your death, or to use a Antigone example, afraid of having your body be picked at by birds rather than given a proper burial. He says, when you're thinking of these things as bad, you're imagining that there's a second self that lives beyond your death, that mm -hmm. on the one hand, you're dead. And then on the other hand, you are still there to see whether you are being respected or disrespected in your death. And so Lucretius is like, there is no second self. When you're dead, you are gone. And so in the same way for him that it's unreasonable or foolish to be worried about what happens to your corpse, because you do not experience what happens to your corpse, in just the same way, he thinks it's unreasonable to Achilles style focus your life on your legacy, on what's going to be thought of you after you're dead. That what you ought to be doing is, I guess, what Achilles realized uh, in the Odyssey that he ought to have been doing. That is living a, living a quiet, natural, happy life. So... This takes us to our next question with regards to, you know, the afterlife. Um, how does this fit in with religions that believe in an afterlife? I mean, obviously, the Judaism, you know, you get heaven with Christianity, you get heaven and hell. Um, and, you know, if you, if you believe these things, can, can you find any value, really, from Epicurus and Lucretius? Yeah, so... One thing I really love about, uh, about this question uh, is, all right, so here's something that, you know, I spend a lot of time teaching college classes, so I'm spending a lot of time with 18-year-olds. On the one hand, this is a hard discussion to have with 18-year-olds because they actually don't believe they're going to die. Um, but on the other, so the other thing that you get with 18-year-olds uh, is that a lot of them are anti-religious and a lot of them are anti-religious in this very straightforward way where they say the reason that people believe in these Judeo-Christian religions is because they're afraid of death. They're afraid of death, so they want to be calmed by the fable or story or myth that they're not really going to die, that your death is only an apparent death and there will be future life for you afterwards. So this is what the anti-religious side, anti-religious, it seems particularly strong amount of teenager that I'm going to hear that line, though a lot of people say it. Yeah. Uh, 
so that religion is there for the sake of calming us about our fear of death. And then a lot of religious people will accept this in a certain way. That is, a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who believe in an afterlife will look at those who don't believe in an afterlife and say, how can you, how can you live in such a like, bare and inhumane and limited world where you really think that this is it? Like They will accept the criticism and they'll deny that it's a criticism. That is, they'll accept the criticism that religion is a response to fear of death and say, yeah, and our lives would feel like empty and pointless if we didn't have that to look forward to. So if you're religious, so does that mean that Epicurus and Lucretius fit in nicely with those who are not religious, but for those who are religious, they wouldn't need Epicurus and Lucretius because they have religion instead? In a certain way, I feel like it's the opposite of, what, of this. That is that both the religious and the anti-religious in the argument that I'm just describing agree that the idea of an afterlife should calm our fear of death. But if Epicurus and Lucretius are right, then there's fear in an afterlife. Afterlife might be something to be afraid of, whereas death as just like a blank, empty nothingness is obviously nothing to be afraid of because it's nothing to experience. But then what about just the fear of the unknown? Yeah. And so this makes me sometimes think that these arguments are so straightforward and make so much sense to me, but I sometimes think that they're just, that the Epicurus Lucretius arguments must be entirely missing the point of what's scary about death to us. <laughs> I, because if the afterlife will calm us from our fear of death, it must be the nothingness that we're afraid of. It, like, it must be the idea that there will be nothing after we die that is the fearful thing, rather than the idea of what is it going to be like after we die that is the fearful thing. Now, and then you add to it the concept that every night we fall asleep and lose consciousness and go into the unknown, and every day we wake up anew. So why are we afraid of the unknown when we like willingly bring it on every day? And we never know when we go to sleep when we're going to wake up the next day. We just, we, we depart every single day. That's, that's perfect, because that's exactly what Lucretius says to respond to this kind of argument. To this kind of argument, he says, you're afraid of nothingness. You're afraid of non-experience. You get hours of non-experience every day. You happily go into that non-experience. You're not frightful or worried about it whatsoever. Death is just not waking up. There's nothing. It's the same experience as being asleep. That's it. There's nothing more to it. And we get scared at the thought of not waking up. But again, you wouldn't even know that you not wake up. There's no experience of not waking up. There's just the experience of going to sleep. And then that's it. I feel like this is only going to result in me being terrified about going to sleep. <laughs> so it's, I sometimes... It's not going to be a bedtime routine, that's for certain. <laughs> I sometimes like to quote Nas in response to this, uh, who says that uh, I never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death. Uh, this is in uh, New York State of Mind on Illmatic. <laughs> yeah, so maybe Lucretius is wrong here too. 
that uh, if we realize that death and sleep are no different, we will realize that we should fear sleep as well as we fear death and for the same reasons. Well, Ian, um, we're kind of nearing our time, so maybe we could just uh, finish, if you don't mind, with just giving me a bit of uh, what you're working on at the moment. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, so um, one thing that we've just been talking about is the idea that Lucretius and Epicurus make a mistake in thinking that all of our desires and all of our fears are centered on ourselves and that we care about the good and bad of others as well. And a lot of people talk about this as one of the, and uh, you were referring to this a little bit, talking about this as the center of, of ethics, of like morality and good and bad being actually caring about other people for their own sake. So one thing I've gotten interested in lately is the emotional response of spite. Mm -hmm. I, I've gotten interested in spite because sort of like uh, benevolence or care for someone is the idea of wanting their good regardless of your own pleasure or pain, regardless of your own experience of their good. I think of spitefulness as wanting to harm someone independent of whether you get pleasure or pain out of it. That mm -hmm. The great and wild and amazing thing about being spiteful is that when you're spiteful, you're willing to undergo pain in order to make sure that someone else undergoes pain. You're willing to undergo discomfort in order to make sure that someone else feels discomfort. And this seems to me that to be a case in which spite is a way in which we show that we care about someone else in a very similar way to the way in which we care about someone else in uh, benevolent or moral situations. And so it's just immoral empathy. <laughs> perfect. That's. I, I think that's going to be my new line on spite. Spite is immoral <laughs> empathy. Well, that sounds fa fascinating. Um, I hope uh, you'll have to share with me the, the end results of this I'm, study. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Classicalism Society members can listen to the entire podcast with Ian Blaustein at classicalwisdom.com.